here. Bad news. He was torn apart! Off his head like Welcome back to Don't Open This Podcast, your guided tour into terror. I'm Tim, and with me as always is my dear co-host, Mike. And today we're delving into horror sequels, specifically the ones that we feel might not be as universally loved as the other entries in the series. Before we get into that, we just want to say thank you to everyone who's reached out about our Start to the Real Slasher series. Uh, If you're starting on this episode, go check out our two-parter discussing 60s and 70s slashers and proto-slashers, and then come back here. So, as we said, as far as kind of the game plan today, we'll be doing a two-parter. Now that we've finished up on the 60s and 70s slashers, we'll be getting back to that whole topic of real slashers a bit later when we get into the 80s. But we're going to take a brief aside for the time being for a two-parter on talking about some sequels that we feel uh, are both deserving of love that may have the love, but we just kind of want to discuss in terms of some great sequels and some of them that might not necessarily be as... Uh, revered as we might feel that's fair that's a very fair way to put it i think one of the most important things about sequels is they're usually made when there's a fan base that wants more sir i want some more what we gonna carry on and plan the sequel because let's face it baby these days you gotta have a sequel You know why they call me Mo? I always want Mo. And when you want more, the the studio gods they 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 see those ticket sales and they listen and they uh, they usually crank out a sequel. Oftentimes a lesser sequel, but sometimes uh, you get an equal romp through through a, a familiar territory. And on the rare occasion, you might get a sequel that surpasses the original. And I think uh, Tim and I are so... We we, we love slashers, but man, we we got our fill for at least a couple of months uh, on the past two episodes. (laughs) And we were talking about what's a cool topic we can do that once again throws us into a very diversified uh, selection of films. And it seems like uh, sequels are a good place to start. So that's exactly where we are today. Yeah, which some of the ones we'll kind of get into throughout today and throughout the next episode. As Mike said, it's if people end up liking it, they want more of that, they're going to get into, let's give them another entry, let's kind of continue on. Some of them, maybe they might build lore, some of them might just kind of tread water and it's, oh, you like this, here's just another thing of the same. 
Some of them might drastically change tone as some of the ones we'll cover today of the first one compared to the second one compared to the third one might be kind of wildly different movies, but all good in kind of different ways. Yeah, I also think we decided to kind of keep this episode a little looser simply because we're talking about a sequel within a franchise. Some of them are are large franchises, other ones maybe only have two or three films, but we're sort of stuck in a situation of we're not going to go and recap in great detail every film that preceded it or came after it. And that's kind of funny because I just mentioned we had our fill of slashers over the last two episodes, but (laughs) you'll learn one thing. We are full of shit when it comes to slashers. We're never really burned out on them. So we're going to open our sequel episode with a sequel that most definitely does not suck. And that is 1985's Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. The mindless, murderous fury that was buried with Jason has been reborn. Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. Rated R. It is actually my favorite of the Friday the 13th series. I know technically probably 4 is a better film as a whole, but for some reason 5, I just, I mean, 5 and 8 are the two that I always just enjoy throwing on, but I'm not, I'm not here to defend 8 today. That's true. And (laughs) we're not big on spoilers here, as you might have put together from our previous episodes, but I do feel that on Friday the 13th Part 5, we're just going to give you... We're not going to give you the exact spoiler, but we are going to tell you right now, right now, here it comes. It doesn't actually have Jason doing the killings. It's an imposter. We're not going to tell you who the imposter is, even though the movie does a very good job of being anything but subtle. And you can kind of figure out who the imposter killer is in the first 20 minutes. But yeah, that's it. I ruined it. I'll let Tim (laughs) tell you a little bit about how it starts off. So the the whole movie begins after we end with part four of Corey Feldman as Tommy Jarvis as a child overcoming Jason at the end of that film. And he's kind of a little unhinged at this point. He's at a kind of a a home. They're doing a, a retreat at the cabin for kind of all of these kids with kind of troubled backgrounds, things of that sort. So Tommy is joining this group from here, which we are introduced to. One of these kids who's a a little, uh, I don't know, maybe overzealous, a little obnoxious, and he ends up bothering the wrong person and gets axed by one of the other kids. And he loves chocolate bars. It's so important. He loves (laughs) chocolate bars. He carries multiple chocolate bars with him. Want a chocolate bar? I'll give you half, but I need half for later. I got two chocolate bars, see? Here, Vic, want a bite? Here. I'll just put it over here. And later on, when you're hungry, you can have it. Well, if that's the way you feel, forget it, Vic. Just forget it. So that kind of kicks this whole thing into action. And then it's all of the, as time goes on, trying to see what's going on as far as Jason. I know it's kind of maligned uh, by some, just because, as Mike said, Jason is technically not uh, the antagonist in this film. But it's interesting just as a break after having something as good as four to have 
if we just tried to retread what four was doing, I think it definitely wouldn't be as effective. So five is kind of like a breath of fresh air, even though it's still following closely with the whole slasher trend there. Yeah, anyone who follows the Friday the 13th series or has watched any of the documentaries, there's so many. There's Crystal Lake Memories and um, his name was Jason. All, all There's many hours you can listen to. The Scream Factory box set of that recently came out the ultimate Friday the 13th collection. There's so many different physical media versions of those films, but that Scream Factory box set is the way to go. And there's pretty much an hour long documentary for each film on those discs. But the thing with Friday the 13th part five, Jason is supposedly killed off for real at the end of the fourth film. And they do take him out in a grandiose fashion that if he were to stay a regular human, he would be absolutely dead. What I like about part five, A New Beginning, is that a lot of times they intended to take the series in one direction, and then midway through production, things occurred that made them just scrap that and go in a different direction. And at one point, they were moving towards Tommy Jarvis to be set up as the new killer. And there are absolutely parts of this film that seem to be going in that direction. We could talk about at the end of this, how poorly it did at the box office. And it did, well, I could talk about it now. It did really poorly at the box (laughs) office because once people were there in droves to see the film, and then as soon as they're walking out the doors, they're telling all their friends, don't go see this piece of shit. Jason's not the killer, whatever. I argue that because... If you look at the core elements of what make a Friday the 13th film great fun, Friday the 13th Part 5 is an exemplary Friday the 13th film in every single aspect of the movie, except that Jason himself is not the physical killer of the film. It is, however, someone dressed to the nines perfectly as Jason, although they give you a a little... um, a little tweak of the mask. It has blue triangles instead of red, which maybe was their way of hinting at it ahead of time. Um, but you essentially have a, a stalk and kill by the numbers slasher that has a group of very promiscuous, very colorful kids. There are more actual murders in this film than any of the previous ones. You've got the musical cues where they should be. You've got some cameos. Um, Mark Venturini, who played Suicide in Return of the Living Dead, he plays this character, Vic, who's in the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, and also we have Spider uh, Miguel Nunez Jr., who plays Demon in this, the older brother of, I believe, Reggie. Uh, who's also the, in Return of the Living Dead. So Yeah, so it's it all ties together. It, it's I feel like there's going to be a lot of weird return, well, if, weird returns to Return to the Living Dead Um, as a series throughout this episode, just in terms of all the ties that have going on. But yeah, as Mike said, it's if you were to watch the film and then leave 10 minutes before the end and not find out about the reveal that it's not Jason, everyone would probably say, oh yeah, this was a fun Friday the 13th movie. But I think it's they feel betrayed by that kind of twist to the ending. But I think it ends up making it more memorable as a whole because I feel like each entry in the series, which we'll kind of deep dive into later on in a section later. But we have the 
The first that introduces Friday the 13th as a whole, we have second where it becomes Jason. We have the third when he gets his mask. We have the fourth when he dies. The fifth where it's not Jason. The sixth when he comes back. The seventh, like all each one ends up adding something unique to it that the previous ones didn't. And I feel like if we just went from four into five without a change like this, that it, it wouldn't be as unique as a whole. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, this was directed by a guy named Danny Steinman. His background was in adult films, like hardcore films. So I will say that this film has um, has the air of a very scummy, very graphic Scooby-Doo episode. And I don't take that as a bad thing. Um, they, they, <laughs> they did choose to interject. Uh, I know Tim will back me up on this. Some, some very over-the-top, almost slapstick performances, which I don't think the previous Fridays had. You've got um, a foul-mouthed uh, lady who lives out on the edge of outskirts of the group home. She just swears a lot, and she's covered in dirt, and she's got this super annoying son. And their sequences together are truly like slapstick comedy. Morning, Ethel. Hi, don't you look lovely today? Poor shit. Now, Sheriff, you better hear me and hear me good. I want this loony bin closed down. Do you hear me, fella? Now, these kids ain't nothing but trouble. They don't respect others' property, and they're all crazy. You tell them off! <laughs> Ethel, these kids weren't doing. Doing? Doing? You think I don't know what those two perverts were doing in my yard? Say it like you mean it, Ma! I also think that the MPAA was on high alert at this point. I mean, because this is 1985. So they were already in that full-blown vendetta mode against any slasher movie, especially one with a recognizable title like Friday. So after the bloodbath that was part four, they tightened up so hard on part five, part six, and seven to the point where a decent amount of the kills in this movie are sort of truncated. It's still violent and it's still bloody. You get to see like a decapitation, but you really get a split second of that head where you know there was probably two or three seconds held on that. And then there's a couple of really cool murder sequences that unfortunately, like they almost feel like they're pulling away at the last moment. But I know for a fact that they did not pull away. The, the gore was shot and the effects were done. And it, it does lessen the impact a little. And I, I sadly feel that that's the case with a lot of slashers from, from that time frame. There were a couple of years where they could barely get any blood through. If you had nudity and blood in the same shot, it was even harder. And with Steinman's background... There's a lot of ample flesh on display in, in this movie. I mean, parts of it do feel almost softcore porn style. It's showtime! <laughs> but again, it adds to the identity of this film. There's a kid named Reggie the Reckless in it, who's just this annoying but, but lovable kid. Man, you are one scared cat. Where I come from, you learn to be scared of nothing. They call me Reggie the Reckless. No spider would scare me. And he scree he screams in this falsetto. <laughs> and he wears like a, a bright red, um, I think it's like a velour running suit. Yeah. And I, I will also say that the the two head people, they're not husband and wife, but they're they're good friends. It's a guy and a girl, and they they run the, the home. 
they are both pretty boring people. And I do think that detracts from it a little, but I really feel it's one of the best Friday the 13th movies. I know it's the bottom or close to the bottom of almost every list that you see out there, but all I'm asking viewers to do is watch this movie and realize that Jason isn't real. It's an actor wearing a Jason mask to begin with. And just pretend that this is an actor wearing a Jason mask, wearing a Jason mask. That's all. It's once removed from it really being Jason. And the fact that they play much like um, when, when you would see Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, those productions would smartly play the horror element straight. I think this film, it does justice to Jason. It never makes him silly or not not imposing when he's on screen. And the most important factor is every freaking person in the movie thinks it's Jason out there to kill them. So you really are getting a Jason movie. It's just a little different. Yeah. <laughs> just a little bit different. So 100%. Plus, I, I grew up watching this back when AMC used to always have the like the Fairfest and all of that, where I think they only had the rights to Halloween 4 and 5, only the rights to Friday 5 and 6, because it was the only ones they ever played. So I grew up watching 5 probably more than anything out of a series. And I just loved Tommy Jarvis as a character from this, even before I saw the fourth, of just the that kind of like stoic, loner, troubled Tommy Jarvis. He has like the... He gets these bursts of rage when people push him too far and he just takes them out during this movie, uh, that it's just a much different expectation of what I was looking for as far as my protagonist in this, in a slasher film. So it's, as I said, breath of fresh air. So Friday the 13th, part five. It's a super fun watch. And you can thank Friday the 13th, part five. That is the film to thank for Jason coming back. Because I'm really not sure if the film was a success the way it was made, you might not have actually gotten Jason. But because it was such a failure, you got a film that they titled Jason Lives. <laughs> that was the title of the movie to ensure that everybody and their grandmother knew Jason was in this movie. And I absolutely adore part six, Jason Lives. So I kind of have to thank part five and the production team behind it, and all the mistakes that might have been made to help create that that part six installment. <laughs> part six, the tagline was, we swear to God he's in this one. Yeah, it's totally really a Jason, we swear. <laughs> it's weird to fit on a one sheet. Now, going as far away from slashers as possible, we're going to talk about the next movie. I love a good anthology, and I know you love a good anthology. And I know we, we, we both love one anthology the most. Oh, yeah. So, naturally, we have to talk about the sequel to one of our favorite anthologies. This is Creepshow 2 from 87. <laughs> Welcome to Creepshow 2. Stephen King and George Romero are at it again. So walk. Run. One more step and blam! Swim if you have to. But whatever you do, don't take your time. Because the scares come twice as quickly in... Creepshow 2. So for anybody unfamiliar with the, the Creepshow series, it's the the first one. It was a series of, I think, uh, four or five stories, I think, including the wraparound. Yeah, Creepshow was a five-part anthology film. And it was basically the, the first time that George Romero, who was 
a titan of the horror world. He teamed with Stephen King. They had worked before together. And King wrote five short stories. He actually wrote more than five, but he wrote a series of short stories. They both wanted to create a loving ode to 1950s and 60s horror comics. So they created Creepshow. And it was one of those great moments in film history where you had these two guys and then Tom Savini and his crew, all at the height of their abilities, they all came together and they snagged a whole bunch of wonderful golden age and young talent. So you had people like Leslie Nielsen playing opposite uh, uh, Ted Danson, who had not become really big. Ed Harris was in it. The list of people that appear, E.G. Marshall, it just goes on and on and on. Creepshow yeah. is a freaking awesome movie. We will do a very deep, nerdy dive into that when we cover anthology films in an upcoming episode. But Creepshow 2, it kind of gets shit on, and it's a wonderful little movie. It's constructed of three short stories. They were actually the short stories that didn't make the cut for the first Creepshow. So you have those three Stephen King's shorts being brought back in Unfortunately, the budget was a lot less than the first film, and I do think, if we're going to talk about the cons first, I do think that the film suffers from only having three stories. Because even if the story is a little bit weak, if you've got five, you're right on to the next one. But three stories means that those each story hangs around a little bit longer, and I think the center story within this trilogy is the best one, and I kind of wish they would have switched the order and ended with that story. And it also has these little animated, old-school-style cell animation, a wraparound story in between each one about a young kid named Billy who gets bullied, and he ends up taking his, his tormentors on a wild bicycle chase through the neighborhood, and they eventually get their just desserts, just like it was one of the stories being told. If you love old school, like Hanna-Barbera animation, you'll really dig the, the style that the second film is told in. The first story, I'll let Tim introduce it because it is a fun one. Yeah, so the, the first story it has uh, George Kennedy and Dorothy L'Amour playing kind of a husband and wife who own this general store in a town. And they have the wooden Indian out front that he takes care of, the cheap wooden head. And the story kind of kicks off with a group of, I guess, kids, youths uh, in town that end up attacking them at the store to kind of rob them so they can go off to Hollywood. And they ended up killing them. And then the chief comes to life and hilarity ensues. So we have, I think it's it's interesting seeing George Kennedy, which I, I know him from all of his work prior to this. Um, so by this point, when I saw this growing up, it was like, oh, yeah, I already know him from a cool hand, Luke. But seeing him in this and like just before dawn of his like late career horror kick, it is nice to see him and Dorothy L'Amour kind of bring a bit of, I don't know, prestige to the whole thing as far as the, the acting, because they certainly do a fine job. They're very endearing. It's yeah, it's an old couple that pulls at your heartstrings early on. Yeah, you they don't need to do much. It's just you immediately. It's like, oh, I. I like him. They're just chatting about like their plans and all of this and his interactions with the town and everything. So the whole thing is kind of like a, a revenge for from the point of a, a sentient wooden Indian 
Um, so you can certainly see where that goes in terms of... Well, actually, it kind of keeps with our little slasher vibe there from the first one. I know, we're not trying to do this. <laughs> we really aren't. It's just happening this way. Anyone who's a fan of, of Mindhunter, uh, the David Fincher show, one of the leads, Holt McCallany, I think his, his name is pronounced McCallany, he is actually in this. He's a character actor. You probably saw him in Fight Club, and he was in Alien 3, I think he was also in, um, he was in Nightmare Alley, the Guillermo del Toro movie that just came out. But he plays this piece of shit, arrogant kid who is obsessed with his hair. And um, he's constantly referencing the powers in his hair, like Samson and Delilah, and how he's going to get out of this crappy little town. And he really chews the scenery as just a villain that you love to hate. He's very over the top, but it fits with the comic book style of, of the film. He's got a couple of lackeys that you could tell they, they're kind of afraid of him, but they're also bored and have nothing else to do. And uh, once they, they murder this couple and incur the wrath of this old chief Woodenhead, it is one of those films that when you realize these are kind of heavily based on the vibe of an old horror comic book, there doesn't have to be an explanation. And that could be looked at as sort of a negative. It's like an easy way out to a lot of the storytelling. But I rather like it because it puts it in a time and place. And it really is that cathartic element of watching someone lovable like this couple get unjustly murdered um, and, and then have the murderers get killed in a supernatural sort of way. And we won't give away the little like the little twists of each one. It's it's just that it's fun to just kick back with some popcorn and watch an anthology movie. And once again, with Creepshow 2, it has this a nostalgic feeling for me just because it came out at a time when cable TV was just playing things into the ground. And you could basically turn on HBO at any point in time. Creepshow 2 was going to be getting played. So it is a movie that I watched it as often as I watched Creepshow. And I kind of like to watch them together just because you get you get the full like eight stories out of it, which leads us into the second story, which I think Tim would agree. Do you think that's the best story? It's the best. I feel it doesn't necessarily need to. It should have ended it. I think this needed to be the opener. Oh, you're right. I, I could see that. It's a better opener than an ender. I, th I mean, overall, I think all of them could shave six minutes and insert a fourth story. And that would have been the... Because all of them are a little long in the tooth yeah. um, as a whole, but all of them are fun. It's just kind of 30 minutes a piece for the most part. So what is that second story? Oh, that would be The Raft, the simplest of setups. You've got uh, an alpha male and an intelligent male and a couple of girls, and I'm pretty sure they're college students. Um, they look a little old to, to be in any sort of school, but that's par for the course with a lot of these genre offerings. Um, they take a ride out to a raft. Um, it isn't winter, but it is certainly off season because they go over how cold the water is. And, yeah. and these kids, they swim out to the raft. Their intention is to smoke a couple of joints on the raft. And then hopefully they're going to hook up with each girl that they're with. And for some weird reason, a gigantic submerged trash bag that stands in for a slime monster starts pulling its way towards the raft. And the kids are, are all in different stages of 
wondering what that is. One guy doesn't give a shit. He's like, ignore it. The other guy's like, I don't know. That looks weird. They talk about how it's an oil slick. This thing, I don't know what the hell it is. It's an oil slick. I guess. It's not an oil slick. Have you ever seen a perfectly round oil slick before? I've never seen an oil slick at all. God, I'm cold. Besides, Poncho, I don't believe in oil slicks, man. You get a little bit of backstory that uh, two of the kids have done some nature work, you know, where they're uh, con conservation work. And they're saying, we, we don't think this is an oil slick. This looks like something that was made on purpose. And the whole time you're watching it being like, it's a giant trash bag with some stuff glued to it. That is until a girl decides to gently caress it. it they sort of show you that maybe it's mesmerizing her, like it has some sort of ability to to um hypnotize its its victims but she's running a bird feather over the top of it while she's sitting on the raft and this thing just leaps out of the water like a giant slime tendril and it globs onto her she's screaming she falls into the water what happened what happened to her did she fall in and you're watching this movie like she did a lot more than fall in like <laughs> Like she's melting right now. It's not that big a raft. You don't know. <laughs> and once that girl just gets dissolved by this creature, the dynamic of the story really does change on like the turn of a dime. It's just like now you're dealing with we're totally screwed. We're totally isolated. And we're on a raft in the middle of a lake off-season where no one is around and every time we move from one side to the other this giant trash bag monster moves around with it so it's basically a waiting game of the three people that are left just trying to figure out how are we going to get back to shore and i think this is a story with such a cool little twist ending that we're not going to give anything away i'm just going to tell you that it's a really tight really fun 20 minute story and it's, it's got some dark humor mixed in with it. Which this was, especially with Creepshow 2, um, growing up, my, my uncle and my cousins, they owned a video store. I mentioned it on our other show. But they always mentioned Creepshow. They talked about Creepshow. My dad was a comic collector growing up. So I always like got to read like EC comics and things of that sort. So Creepshow 2 was such a big buildup. And specifically the raft segment from it just because even before i saw it i had heard about it for like years leading into this and i think even aside from the fact that it is the best of the three stories i think that it ends up adding that little extra bit of magic to the whole thing as far as a segment of having a little bit of familial backstory to getting into that raft which leads us to the third and final story the hitchhiker it opens with a woman who is uh, having an affair. Yeah, she's well-to-do, like a well-to-do lady. And she ends up leaving her lover and is headed home. Um, and the entire movie, she's kind of giving a an open monologue to herself. She's kind of narrating as she goes, talking to herself. Oh, that's, you did a great job with this. <laughs> her gigolo charges her by the orgasm. You charge by the orgasm? Good idea. I do my job well. I expect to be paid well. And apparently she had so much fun that she lost track of time. So that's the that's the setup is that her husband is going to be home 
and she won't be home. So she's speeding to get home. And on her way, she absolutely creams this guy on the side of the road who's got a sign and he's just he's just hitchhiking. And she smacks into him and hit and runs it and just takes off, uh, which leads us to a Stephen King cameo as a hysterical uh, long haul trucker from Maine. <laughs> Who gets out of the car, and I think he actually uses the term, a guy got creamed out there, like, and it just makes you laugh, because it's always fun to see Stephen King in a story. And yeah, in, in straightforward EC Comics, Tales from the Crypt Horror style, she then becomes uh, the victim of a recurring vision of this, this beaten up hitchhiker just keeps appearing, saying, thanks for the ride, lady, thanks for the ride. And she just keeps hitting him and running him over and killing him over and over again. So he progressively is getting more and more mangled and mauled to the point where by the end of the episode, he is just a walking flesh lump. It's like a pile of beaten up skin and his face is all split open. His his bones are protruding, but he's still grumbling. Thanks for the ride, lady. Thanks for the ride. And she's getting more and more frantic, as you would expect. And it has a little wrap up with a final stinger. You could fill in the blanks and, you know, you won't know exactly what happens. But uh, no, no one in these these stories really gets away clean or scot free, as they say. But, yeah, that's the thing with Creepshow, too. It's there are people that I know that really, really prefer this film over the first one. I just feel that the the pedigree in the first film, it, it's sort of like going to an opera is going to see Creepshow. And going to like, I don't know, maybe a, a college talent show is more like going to see Creepshow 2. And they're both fun evenings. Creepshow 2, you have some effects work from KNB. They were very, very famous in that time frame. And they're, they're very big now, too. But I think their heyday was the mid-80s to the early 90s or mid-90s. Greg Nicotero was part of that. He was the N in KNB. He branched off and is now the, the producer of uh, Walking Dead, and he did a lot of directing for that show as well. Uh, he's a great guy, a very nice, humble person. And um, they factor in heavily on the Blu-ray edition of this film. And it's a worthy pickup from Arrow Video, because if you like the movie, it's a beautiful transfer, there's commentary tracks, and there's a really cool hour-long documentary on the effects makeup. And there's some pretty fun stories involved, because the budget really was super small. And this small team of guys, they, they did pull off a lot of cool shit with not a lot of money. And you'll get to hear some stories about, like, Greg Nicotero rushing from one location to another with 10 or 15 gallons of, of slime. And the, the slime actually turned over in his car and just created like a knee high pool of black slime in his car. But once again, you're talking a low budget film with a really tight shooting schedule. So he, he kind of uh, takes you through scooping the slime out of the car back into the vats so that they can use it. And it's just, it's one of those things. There's a lot of ingenuity, you know, thrown into that film. And some of the performances are super fun. And uh, Tom Savini actually makes a, a very brief appearance as a physical embodiment of the creep. In the first creep show, the creep is presented as a window specter puppet. And then it quickly, during a lightning flash, they turn it, into an animated character this movie sort of does the opposite 
and he starts off as an animated character, but the ending of the film, you get to see a physical makeup effect of the creep. And it's very cool. Um, I should also mention it was directed by Michael Gornick, who actually shot the first creep show. So there is some shared DNA in the people behind the scenes. And for any listeners out there that really dig creep show one and creep show two, you guys would probably be interested to know that tales from the dark side, the movie is essentially it's the skeleton of what was supposed to be creep show three. So if you really want to see more of that, check out tales from the dark side, the anthology, the movie, not the TV show. Um, but it sort of serves as a nice third entry. There is a totally horrible direct to video sequel called Creepshow 3 that is connected to none of these people. And when I say the quality, it's unwatchably bad. Just please don't even waste your time. Turn it off. Stop it. Watch Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. And that's yeah. it for Creepshow 2. And, and then watch Tales of the Dark Side, the show. For sure. Watch watch the episode with the Cuddy Black Sal. Oh, Go on a... Shudder. <laughs> watch Creepshow, the series. Oh, yeah. Greg Nicotero actually is the showrunner for uh, Creepshow, the TV series. So there you go. I have mixed yeah. feelings on it. It's worth watching. It's cool. I just, I don't know. It, it doesn't have that vintage feel of, of the two films. But enough of Creepshow. We should move on to something utterly bonkers and impossible to explain, but we'll attempt it. And that would be... Phantasm 2, with the tall man himself. <laughs> Boy! For ten years, the secret of Paragord Cemetery has remained a mystery. Now, three innocent people are about to discover the ultimate evil. We've got to warn people! This summer, the ball is back. Phantasm 2. It's only a dream. No, it's not. Rated R. Oh, boy. Phantasm 2, man. Tim Phantasm. (laughs) The Phantasm series as a whole is a fever dream to me. It sticks with me overall, and specifically, like, I I like 2 as well, because the entire thing feels like something that I made up as a child or dreamt. And thought, oh yeah, like that clearly isn't a real movie. And then end up watching this and it's it all comes flooding back. I, I think before <laughs> Phantasm, we can't just jump into Phantasm 2. We, we can, but Phantasm, the first film, it, Tim and I talked a lot about Game Changers when we did our, our first episode of the Slasher movies. And the first Phantasm, I do think it, it, it's extremely important movie that is a perfect example of of an auteur who is driven and has that hunger and that thirst to make something different. And he did it. His name is Don Cascarelli. He made this movie Phantasm. It didn't follow any rules. He seemed to not care if anyone liked it or not. It has that feeling of, I'm making this for me, and maybe the people out there that'll get it. And the rest of them, the hell with them. He's sort of always acted that way in his career and it's impressive because he made this whole series of phantasm films and it's such an odd franchise because i cannot think of another franchise that when i revisit it every five to ten years which i do every time i go into a phantasm binge in my head i have worked out 
which ones are my favorites and which ones I think kind of suck and which ones I think are good, but make no sense. And every time I revisit these movies, my order almost completely changes. There's a couple of stand like Phantasm is always in the top two, but sometimes I watch Phantasm two and I like it more than Phantasm one. And other times I'm like, no, Phantasm did it first and it, it is a better movie. Sometimes I think I can't stand three, but four is really fun. And other times it's the opposite. So it's this bizarre, morphic, weird, genre bending story that's fucking crazy. It's absolutely a crazy story. So we could try to put this into a linear form for you to understand what Phantasm 2 is. I think we're covering it because... Yeah, it's the most accessible, I think, of them all. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and I, it, it's I think more linear. all of the sequels. Yeah, all of the sequels really almost assume that you've seen the previous ones just because I, I feel like it builds on its own lore a lot. In some though, spots, <laughs> other spots, yeah. it doesn't matter. You could take notes and it won't make sense. It's, yeah, it's a free for it, it is a lot of like dream logic. It is a lot of. Um, as you said, like it's Don Coscarelli doing what he wants. It's a movie for him that we just happen to all end up loving. Like in the first one, there's a whole segment that's just ends up going into like a music number of Reggie Bannister, just like playing guitar. Um, because the actor played guitar and could sing. So he was like, Hey man, why don't you play a song and we'll record it and we'll put it in the movie. Yeah. And it's, it ends up being odd but it fits with the rest of the feel of the movies and it's kind of that concept that goes into all of them of well that was peculiar but somehow it doesn't feel out of place because i feel like there's nothing that feels in place with these so with um phantasm 2 we're coming into the character that a michael baldwin played in the the first film he originally thought uh, for anybody who hasn't seen the end of the first phantasm uh that the his brother has passed away that uh, the tall man, Angus Scrim, who is at the, the mortuary uh, for the, the kind of funeral home mausoleum is taking over people and taking the corpses and after him from there. So he ends up getting out of um, an institution. He ends up proving that he's okay. He checks himself out and we find out that he is not okay. He still a hundred percent thinks that the tall man uh, caused all this and is after him. And he kind of enlists his old friend, Reggie, the ice cream man, to <laughs> get roped into this adventure and do battle with the tall man and try to get to the bottom of what is the tall man, what all of this is, what's going on. Yeah. There's and a there's a point like of, a road movie. It is very much like a road movie. There's a big point of contention amongst Phantasm fans. They they spell it PH fans. Phantasms. Yeah. Which makes sense. It's it's pretty clever. Um, A point of contention is that Mike, who is a beloved character from the first movie, was recast in this film uh, by an actor named James LaGrosse, who does a fine job. I guess a lot of fans were very upset about that. And from that point on, the movies, the series is already a little convoluted. But in the following Phantasm films, that original actor reprises his role. So James LaGrosse is, is, he only plays Mike once and it's in this, but I think he does a really good job. And as Tim stated, the, the tall man is this iconic, creepy mortuary mortician guy. 
he's more than that. He's not human. And uh, he has these, these sentinel balls, these silver spheres that zoom around. And yeah, you're hearing me right. It's a silver ball that flies around. And these balls seek out their victim. And in these wonderful tracking shots, you will see as they, they zoom in and they lock on their target, a couple of blades pop out. And then those blades jam into the, the victim's skull. As they scream and bleed, a, a drill bit, a really thick drill bit, slowly comes out of this ball, drills into their skull, and sucks the blood out of their body while spitting it out like explosive diarrhea out the back of the ball. It's, it's the kind of scene that, if you've seen Phantasm, when you sit down to watch Phantasm 2, you're just waiting for those balls to appear because they're so fun. And they are like the Freddy glove of the Phantasm series. Oh, they're, they're iconic. Yeah, they, they really are super cool. What I love about Phantasm 2 is, like Tim had stated, it is essentially a road movie. And you've got this lovable team that had been split up for years. They're now reunited and they go out to track down. It's, it's trying to take down the Goliath. It's like our odds are totally against us, but we're just going to grab a few shotguns and we're going to get in our, our Hemi Cuda car and we're going to, we're going <laughs> to cruise out on the road and we're going to find where the tall man is and, and where he is, is that he goes to these little small towns and pretty much wipes the people out. And there's these shots of them pulling into a town, finding the graveyard, and the graveyard, every single grave has been dug out and it's empty. And those are some really, really cool atmospheric yeah. moments that you get. And then you also, because of that dream logic that we were talking about earlier, you kind of never know what's around the corner. It's far more complex and interesting than a slasher movie or even like a giant creature feature because it isn't like they're trying to avoid um, a werewolf that's coming in to attack them. They're trying to avoid, they're actually trying to find the guy that is going to kill them. And I think that makes it a lot more interesting and different from your average horror movie where they're hunting the big bad and the yeah. big bad is pretty tough, you know, cause he's not, He's not human, as we mentioned. Yeah, which I think adds a different element to the whole thing. Of It's, it's not like a, a Jason. It's not like a Michael. It's not anything of, okay, well, it's kind of within the realm of what I can understand. It's, we're going after a guy that I have no idea what he's capable of. I know what I've seen so far, but it seems like he has an endless bag of tricks. So yeah, it, it could be anything that we're walking into. And it ends up really adding to that whole mystique of this film. And plus, any film by Don Coscarelli, I say this because he also made Bubba Hotep, which we will get to in our horror comedies, and uh, he directed an unfortunately under-budgeted adaptation of a book called John Dies at the End. Regardless of budget, Don Coscarelli has a style, and it's prevalent in everything he makes. And something I love about him is he has this cornucopia approach, the the kitchen sink approach where he might like character moments and tender drama. So he's going to put that in there. He's going to stick you with a five minute scene. That's very tender dialogue 
between two people that care about each other. But then he's going to throw in a person peeling their skin off or a ball sucking the blood out of somebody. <laughs> you you don't know what you're going to get with one of his movies. And uh, and again, it's just I, I have such an appreciation for one man who has fought tooth and nail to, to raise the budget for each Phantasm movie to buck the system. And I'm sure that when he made this, Phantasm 2 is easily the highest budget. It was actually backed by a major studio because Phantasm had become such a, a beloved cult film. So this was the movie that was being made where you know Universal Pictures executives were like, Hey, Donnie, we like your ideas, but, you know, lay off the psychedelic drugs there. Can you make this, can you make this, like, can we understand it? Because I don't know what the fuck Phantasm is about. What's with all the balls? But but the kids like it, you know? And I could just see Coscarelli going home and being like, let me write a scene that just makes, makes these guys cringe, you know? Because when you watch Phantasm 2, again, it's the most linear and it's the easiest one to understand but it is not your run-of-the-mill 1988 action adventure horror movie it's phantasm 2 and that's why i love it um again it's a coin toss sometimes i like it more i think it's my favorite phantasm movie but then a lot of times i go back to the original um but if you're going to watch two phantasm movies it should be a double feature of one and two together and watch them late at night yeah they're late night movies they're like that three, dream logic yeah. really works well after like a, a midnight. Yeah. Which keeping with the the whiplash of <laughs> kind of style to style, tone to tone, brings us to the sequel to a, a classic. This is Damien, Omen 2 from 1978. What would you call a child who was no man's child at all? What would you call a child whose mother was a jackal? What would you call the devil? Damien, Omen 2. The first time was only a warning. Damien, Omen 2. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Another very uneven franchise that I'm not even sure should have been a franchise. I mean, the first Omen... For anyone that has not seen it, it's it really is, I think, an American classic. Richard Donner is a talented man, and he it, it sort of has a Hitchcock feel to me. The, the way I look at Hitchcock doing Psycho, there was a, a line where someone once said that Hitchcock said, if, what if someone really good did a horror movie and then he did Psycho? It's that thing of what if a really classy director took on a Satan story? Uh, you get the first Omen, which is a great film. It did really well, which meant that Omen 2 was bound to happen. And in 1978, a director named Don Taylor came in and made the Omen 2, uh, centering on Damien, a 12-year-old Damien. And he's with his aunt and uncle now because the parents didn't make it. Spoilers. Yeah, you can cut that. I... <laughs> no, that's that's fine. It's a sequel episode. Yeah, so the... Kind of not to give away all of the omen as a whole, but it kind of leaves off with Damien, um, his family that he's with, is no longer around. So now Damien is sent off to live with his aunt and uncle. He becomes friends with his cousin, Mark, who is around the same age as him as they both go to this kind of military 
academy, which is, it seems to be like they're there for the week, they're back for the weekends. So it's a very kind of well-to-do family. And once again, same as we have in The Omen, it slowly starts to introduce the concept of there's a lot of players out there in positions of power with like the uncle's company or as far as teachers at the school that are all in on the concept of Damien being the Antichrist and are all kind of rooting for him out there and trying to guide his hand from there. And the whole movie is kind of Damien also coming into his own of understanding what that means and realizing who he is uh, and what his role is in the world. And then will he assume that role? Will he kind of reject that role? What is the case? As everyone else seems to be finding out about Damien's secret, um, because for some reason it seems like everybody finds out every 10 minutes in this film, somebody (laughs) else is finding out that Damien's the Antichrist. This film has an opportunity to choose different pathways several times throughout the storyline. It's a competently made film. It's pretty easy to watch because the performances are good. The editing is well done. It, it isn't a bad film. What's kind of frustrating about it is when it has a choice to take a certain avenue, I find that more often than not, it chooses the less interesting route. And I really don't know why it goes that way, because you have a premise of the Antichrist coming of age, and they do establish, as he's learning what he is, that he's just a good-natured kid, and he's learning that he is meant to take over mankind, and that he is the epitome of evil. And I think it's so freaking interesting if they played the story out as a conflicted person of what if you're being told that it is literal prophecy, you were born not of, of a man and woman, you were born of a demonic immaculate conception of hell and that you have no choice. You have to do this. I think it's so freaking cool that the kid doesn't want to do this. They establish a few fleeting moments of that. And when I first saw this movie, I was gripped because I'm like, this is going to be a cool story, but then he just sort of accepts it. And it becomes a Rube Goldberg, like a uh, complicated death sort of movie, um, <laughs> which the Omen pulled off beautifully and did spawn a whole bunch of imitators all the way up to, I think, Final Destination. Shows yeah, I was going to say, both some, of them feel DNA like Final Destination. Um, but that is something that the Omen was famous for. It was like a bunch of things go down and it ends up with a person getting decapitated or a bunch of things go down and a person falls to their death only after you think they escaped it, but then it happens. Because, again, it's preordained. It's like, you screwed with the Antichrist, you're going down. And this movie does that. It recycles that element from the Omen. And I can't say that I really blame them, because that is sort of part of what makes the Omen have its own identity. So I'm okay with them using that. And there are a few really cool uh, death sequences. There's a Uh, attack by crows that is i think wonderful and there's also a bisection by elevator which you have to see to believe because it's it's awesome but it does turn into a thing where i think at first a, a discerning viewer will be totally on board because it seems like it's going in a little bit more of an intellectual way and a theological way which would be a cool movie and then it kind of cheeses out and becomes like a drive-in popcorn movie sort of thing. And as much as a lot of people don't like the film, 
Um, I mean, I think it's more of a two-star rating kind of deal if you look around on aggregate sites. I feel that it's got enough cool shit in it. I mean, if you put Lance Hendrickson in a movie, I already give you half a star just for that. So I liken it more to like a 75, 80, you know, maybe just an 80, but it is a sequel that doesn't suck. And if you watch the future sequels to the Omen series, I think it's very safe to say that Omen 2 doesn't suck. Omen 2 is good. Like, Omen is a classic. Omen is good. And the other Omens, they range from mediocre to did you really make that and just slap the name Omen on it? So that's that's pretty much. There isn't a lot to say about the film, um, but it is a fun hour and a half. I enjoy it. Absolutely. And I do say, uh, if you want another Lance Henriksen dealing with a uh, devil child, <laughs> can I interest you in Michael Paradise's The Visitor? Oh, Jesus. But he pops for up another everywhere. Day. That's, a, that's for another day. <laughs> so we're actually going to come on a, a movie that I hadn't seen in ages that when we were talking about this as the, the episode and you brought it up, I said, I'll go back. I'll revisit this. I revisited this movie recently, and I have to say, I have turned a 180 on this. I <laughs> love this film. Uh, so what movie is this, Mike? This movie is Exorcist 3. The creator of the original Exorcist is back with a terror unlike any ever known. Just behind this door. <laughs> Blatty's The Exorcist 3. This movie should be called Legion, but we have to call it Exorcist 3. And it was made in 1990. And boy, there's a lot to say about this one. There's a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes fuckery going on. There's uh, connections to serial killers that are pretty interesting. Uh, there's Oscar-worthy performances, there's hammy performances, there's forced things by the studio, uh, in, entire sections of film being reshot. There's, it, it's like one life to live. It's a soap <laughs> opera behind the scenes. But yeah, The Exorcist 3, Legion. We're going to double team this the entire way through because there's so much to say. Yes. I'll give you the bare bones basics. It takes place 15 years after the original film. In real life, you've got The Exorcist movie, which, of course, changed horror cinema. Then you have John Borman's ill-fated Exorcist 2, which was universally known as one of the worst horror sequels ever. You had two different guys, William Peter Blatty and William Freakin. William Peter Blatty wrote The Exorcist. William Freakin directed The Exorcist. They clashed because they were both geniuses and they were both very self-absorbed people. But they're both talented. And together, you got The Exorcist out of them. So, William Peter Blatty, super pissed off about what The Exorcist 2 was, so he went out and wrote a book called Legion, which follows several of the characters from The Exorcist, but it negates, it's like a, a first-time-ever retcon. It just totally erases anything dealing with Exorcist 2. The book was a bestseller, did really well, and over time a company called Mill Creek, Morgan Creek, my mistake, uh, they got the rights to The Exorcist. 
and they immediately wanted to cash in. They waited around 1990 because they thought it would be a good time frame. They wanted to make Exorcist 3, and they wanted the same dream team of the William Peter Blatty and the William Freakin together. Freakin dropped out of the project. Blatty signed on to direct it, and the studio agreed that he could make Legion, but they wanted to call it Exorcist 3. He wanted to call it just Legion, or at the very least, Exorcist Legion. They weren't, they weren't having that, so they stuck with Exorcist 3. That's the first really annoying situation that William Peter Blatty had to deal with. Secondly, Bill Kinderman, the actor who played that character, he died in the late 70s, and he is one of the leads of the Legion story. So they recast that role with George C. Scott, who was famous for playing Patton and a bunch of other things. George C. Scott was known to be kind of a hothead, uh, but he had a little bit of genre pedigree because he was in The Changeling, and they knew he was a good actor. So they cast him, and the story follows Lieutenant Kinderman, and he's investigating a series of murders around Georgetown, which is exactly where Exorcist took place. It surrounds killings that match those of the Gemini Killer, who is sort of their version of the Zodiac. And the Gemini killer was someone named James Vinneman, who was put to death in the electric chair. So when these people start turning up, murdered with the exact M.O. of the Gemini, but the M.O. that was kept secret from the press, they had put out a false narrative so that they could weed out all of the, the crackpot people who were claiming to be the killer. So you're talking like years later, these killings start up again. And they're spot on to exactly what the Gemini was doing. That sends Kinderman into a, a crisis because he knows that this should not be possible. You then fold in a psychiatric hospital where you have a patient there known as Patient X because they found him wandering around a canal, I think, 15 years prior. So they have no idea who this John Doe is. The guy has been locked up in solitary confinement, but he's been claiming to people that come in, the orderlies and the nurses, that he is in fact the Gemini killer and that he's killing these people. So they bring that to George C. Scott's character, and that's where the movie sort of kicks off. And it's a very engaging setup. So the, the entire thing, I think, as you said, George C. Scott, working with... um. The, his friend in this movie, Father Dyer, um, Ed Flanders. I was surprised at the casual but friendly dialogue between the two of them that it's, I would just watch a movie of the two of them just kind of hanging out throughout this because you see George C. Scott as so sarcastic, as so abrasive to so many characters. What was the murder weapon, Stedman? I'd be guessing. What if not us who? And if not now, when? All right, something like uh, Garden Shears, maybe. We're abandoned. I can get you. I, I was signaling beings on Mars. Sometimes they answer. And then he meets up with his friend, and his friend is kind of meeting him at every step of the way that they're both together. That it's it ends up creating kind of a very different tone than what I was used to when I first saw the first Exorcist. What are you doing? I need some lemon drops. We'll be late for the start of the picture. I once spent a year hearing children's confessions, and I wound up a lemon drop chunky little weirdos keep breathing it on you along with all that pot and between the two of them i've got a feeling it's probably addictive you feel like you're watching a tv show called the oddest couple 
Yeah. Because it's like the odd couple, but even more out there. What are you doing out here? Founding an order called Lurking Fathers? I've been standing out there for centuries. Four new popes have been elected. It's a lot of white smoke. Yeah, that it's like a, a hardcore detective and a Catholic priest yeah. and a priest and an atheist <laughs> going back. Yeah, and just discussion like religion and just chatting about like movies and just like how's life and it it ends up creating a very fun tone surprisingly for a movie that then cuts into these murders that it's disturbing in terms of oh well it's the a person was found with their head cut off and it was replaced with a a, oh, a sta statue, yeah, a statue and, of Christ's head and yeah and then the, and, the head's painted up in blackface because it was a a young black boy from one of the police boys clubs and they found him like um crucified on rowing oars with this this statue this christ head that was painted up like a minstrel makeup so it, it had um it had ingots in, in the eyes, you know, like where you would hang the, the nails that you would hang Christ on. Yeah. Like that's just a very disturbing, like, yeah, it's like super twisted. Speaking of super twisted, one thing I'll mention right now is that this film was a favorite of Jeffrey Dahmer and they actually found multiple VHS copies of this movie in his apartment. And, no laser disc. And well, maybe maybe he had a laser disc. <laughs> he, he was too busy buying Milwaukee beer and whatever else. But um, but the the creepiest thing I think with the Dahmer connection is in an interview, Dahmer said that he would fantasize about him being the Gemini killer, and he actually would wear contact lenses from time to time, in, in an attempt to mimic the look of the killer. And it happens that both those characters are portrayed in the films with yellow eyes that give them an eerie look. And Mr. Dahmer even went to the extent of buying a pair of contact lenses with that yellow tint that he would wear uh, when he would go to the clubs so that he could have more of that look. Like, and we haven't even gotten into the meat and potatoes of what's so disturbing about the film itself. But I want everyone out there that has not seen it to watch this with the knowledge that Dahmer loved this this character. Because I think it it's so creepy in the movie when you don't know that, and it's got to add a layer of uneasiness knowing that going in. But yeah, as the story progresses, Kinderman worms his way into meeting this patient X. And this is hard to explain, but I will try to do it without going too far off the rails. The actor who played Damien Karras in the first film, his name is Jason Miller. And Jason Miller was supposed to play this character. Unfortunately, he was a very hardcore alcoholic, and he had what they call wet brain, which causes you to, to forget things and lose track of, of uh, your time and place. And apparently they were going to use him, but he was having an extremely hard time remembering any of his lines. So Blatty was sort of forced to rethink this. And what he did was a genius fix. Oh, yeah. They brought in uh, Brad Dorif, who is an amazing character actor. And Brad Dorif plays the Gemini killer in this film. They shot the entire movie with him and then found out from the studio that the studio demanded Jason Miller be part of it. So they were then stuck with how to work this out. And they were going to scrap everything i mean they shot 
Brad Dorf for all the dialogue. They were going to scrap all of that and bring Jason Miller in to do it. They went to attempt to do that, and the poor guy could not remember all of his lines. But they loved what they were getting from him. So what what the director chose to do was present the Gemini killer when he is in the guise of the priest as the Jason Miller actor. So when he's docile, he is Jason Miller. And when he's speaking to Bill Kinderman as the Gemini killer, they seamlessly switch actors and they start shooting and using Brad Dorff. The the first scene that it happens, if you didn't know that going in, you might be a little confused, but they do a very good job of explaining what the scenario is. And I want to explain that scenario to you, but I really want you to experience it on your own because they show a lot of restraint and they give you these little pieces as, as the movie progresses. And as things get more exorcisty and things get more supernatural and more disturbing, you start getting a little bit more explanation from this dual performance, whether it's Jason Miller on screen or Brad Dorif, they're one and the same. And you're basically learning that this is a grand scheme being played out by the Pazuzu demon from the first movie. And when you find out what that scheme is, it is sort of blood curdling and spine tingling. It's, it's very, very creepy. And it gets under your skin in the right way. And that, like, I know what I said might have been pretty convoluted, but I think you'll understand when you watch the film that it's it's a cerebral... You could see the film that Blatty wanted to make, which was a quieter, dialogue-driven, um, supernatural thriller that was... It was very intellectual. And he kept running into stumbling blocks with Morgan Creek. The final straw was that when they watched the rough cut, they told him that this is called Exorcist 3. You don't have an actual exorcism in it. You have to make an exorcism in it. And Blatty was just dumbfounded and, and upset. And he didn't know what else to do. He was like, how, how do you work an exorcism into a movie that does not have any re- reason for an exorcism? But left in that situation, which was a shoot it yourself or we'll get someone to shoot it. He took control as best he could and he shot a grandiose over-the-top exorcism sequence that involves a, an additional priest that comes in only in the third act and his name is <laughs> his name is Father Morning. But I have to say, the actor who plays Father Morning brings that shit and he's really good. Oh yeah. And, and even though you're watching something that tonally takes somewhat of a left turn we you've been watching a certain type of movie and it becomes a different type of movie but fortunately it just it it only becomes grandiose it doesn't become ridiculous and i think that's a testament to how much skill blatty has because what was done to him throughout this production was enough to make a lot of people walk or just give up throw their hands in the air and let the studio butcher it. But he tried his best to craft the best movie he could. Which I think the thing that I appreciate about The Exorcist 3 is, like my feelings about the original Exorcist aside, it does something that is great in terms of a sequel is it stands on its own. Granted, if you watch The Exorcist, 
you understand some of the stuff that's going on, but I feel like they explain enough of it and it makes sense enough within its own kind of cohesive self-contained story that it's not, oh, well, I need to watch The Exorcist before I can watch The Exorcist 3. Otherwise, it's not going to be a good movie. You can watch Exorcist 3. They fill you in on what stuff you might have missed that plays into it. And it ends up standing alone as a different tone, but a great movie as a whole. Yeah, um, you, you really I, do not need to see The Exorcist. You should yeah. see it because it's a great movie, but you really don't have to. You know, yeah. they, they, they cover the... Uh, the nest he plunged down the steps and that really that's, in that's the really very, that's like the very <laughs> opening of the movie um i think yeah. they reference reagan you know in maybe a sentence they they say a little girl like uh he, yeah. he, he's like, the priest oh, who they... died helping a little girl like that's it yeah and it's just like a brief aside and then that's that's all you get and that's all you need as far as it but it ends up having that different tone of having um george C. scott has these dreams of kind of heaven um, and all of these kind of very surreal moments of all the bands playing in heaven and he's meeting the people that have gotten killed. Yeah, yeah. his premonition of, of someone dying is this big band heaven. I think it's shot in um, in like whatever the equivalent of Grand Central Station in whatever train station is, is in uh, Washington. Yeah. It's shot like in a train station. And it has all that soft, gauzy, like 70s lighting where they make it look like ethereal. And you've got, it's so bizarre. You've got like Samuel L. Jackson as a man, just he has got one line talking into a radio. And then you've got Fabio as an angel. And you've also got Patrick Ewing as an angel. It's just this yeah. very jarring, strange moment. Um, but I think for me, one of the coolest aspects of the film is I absolutely adore the dialogue. There's a couple of times where maybe it goes a bit too far, but the exchange between Kinderman and the Gemini and Kinderman and Father Karras, as well as the exchange between Kinderman and any of his cohorts, he's he, he yells a lot. Um, he snaps a lot. Um, but it's a very... Well, he also has these very know, sarcastic quips that mm -hmm. it's like... No, he's the smartest guy in the room yeah, sometimes yeah. but there's a, just, there's fun. a scene where he cries um over someone dying and I, I have to say like you could call george c scott's performance a, a bit overdone in a few areas but that scene where he he gets upset and actually cries out of sorrow i thought it was brilliant like i when i every time i watch that movie and i see that little moment it it feels so real. It feels like I, I think a lot of us have um, maybe a dad or an uncle who's just that, you know, real men don't cry type like that type. That is the type of person that you kind of feel Kinderman would be. And yeah. when, when you see him cry, it really drives home how much he cared about the person that I will not mention that gets killed. And I, I think it's a wonderful moment. It adds a gravity and a weight to the characters. Um, which leads me to the little extra that I wanted to mention. Anyone who watches this that falls in love with it the way we did, that original cut of the film, the, the William Peter Blatty cut, the one that the studio deemed way too boring, way too intellectual, and had no exorcism, that was thought to be lost. Blatty himself had tried to, to get a version of that out, and they just kept saying, we don't know where the footage is, it's, it's gone. 
the fine folks at Scream Factory somehow unearthed video footage and a couple other pretty badly beaten prints. I, I'm not sure what version of a print it was. Might have been a work print, which is something that filmmakers will watch before they it's a loosely edited together. Maybe it has some things they're going to excise or whatever. And a lot of times it doesn't have music uh, cut into it. It's just the footage. But they found the vast majority of his original vision, which again is Brad Dorif playing the entire role. And they cut together a very watchable version of that film. Once again, it's I think it's only about 85 to 90% of what, his overall vision was, but it does remove all of the things forced by the studio. So if you pick up, I, I don't think it's streaming. I think you would have to buy it. It's worth every penny. If you buy their special edition Blu-ray, it's got the theatrical cut, and it's also got this, this William Peter Blatty director's cut. I would really, really uh, recommend watching both, if you're a fan, because they are very different movies, and if I had a way to magically combine my favorite parts of both, I could make a perfect Exorcist 3 for my viewing pleasure, and I would watch that. But as it stands, I like both. I'm kind of weirdly partial to the bastardized theatrical cut, just because I grew up on that. <laughs> it's really weird, because I should want to see the director's vision. Um, but I've gotten so is used it to... Stockholm Syndrome? It, yeah, I think it is. I, I, I have demonic Stockholm Syndrome. But yeah, there's... Uh, there's one or two jump scares in this movie that will fucking get you. Like, they will absolutely get you. And once again, um, we didn't really cover who Brad Dorf is, but uh, he is the voice of Chucky. I am Chucky, the killer dog, and I dig it! And he's also the Charles Lee Ray human incarnation of Chucky. He won an Oscar as Billy Bibbit from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's an amazing actor who's been in, in quite a few different types of films but if you look him up on imdb you will not find a movie you might find a movie that isn't great that he's in but you will never find a movie that he is not great in he's great in every single film i've ever seen him in and i can't wait to talk about spontaneous combustion and uh graveyard shift and a whole bunch of brad door films oh you have and, to say it the right way 11 to 7 the graveyard shift Star search. <laughs> uh, but yeah, do you have anything else to add? I mean, I feel like we did a pretty deep breakdown. It this movie, you gotta you just have to see it. It it's a visual yeah. they're all every movie we talk about is a visual experience, but Exorcist 3 has its own unique feeling between the dialogue and the visual elements. Nothing really feels like it. And I, I've always really loved the film for that reason. So Exorcist 3 is is a great film, a great sequel. Yeah. So, so check out the uh, physical release. That way you can see the other cut as well. Or if you just want to check out the movie as a whole, it's on Shudder right now. Shudder's got it. I want to so. say a little something about Shudder because we always say a little something about them. I've been a subscriber since they started. And in the beginning, I was not blown away by their curation. I enjoyed it. But I wasn't super impressed. The last two or three months, Tim, Shudder has been bringing that shit home. Like, I'm so impressed with what's on Shudder. I feel like every movie that I knew I had to own on Blu-ray, 
has popped up in the last two or three months on Shudder. They really are, I think they're weeding out a, a lot of the um, mediocre stuff. And they're like, just, they're doing like hit after hit. They have a really wide selection of great stuff right now. Yeah. Plus, I it's I like that overall they'll have some of the bigger hits of, oh, you can catch the, like a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street. But then they'll also have some of the harder to find ones. Like I know they just put up Intruder, um, yeah. things like that of kind of some of the, the lesser knowns. But then they'll also go with some more kind of modern or independent films, things that kind of cover all of their bases in terms of just the world of horror right now. So I think it's a great overall selection um, of just like th- throw something on. To the listeners out there, Shudder doesn't even sponsor us and they probably should because we absolutely plug them, but we plug them justly. Their selection, it, it's like a giant horror section in a video store or, or like when, when Best Buy used to carry a lot of physical media and they had yeah. a horror section, they have this thing it's jam packed with, with really cool stuff. Um, some of it is things that I only own on DVD that I've held on to until I could upgrade them to, to Blu-ray, but they have them on here. Um, we're skimming it right now. And Rocktober blood is not one you come across too often. Yeah. Uh, just before dawn, you had to, in the past, you'd have to buy the code red Blu-ray. It was out of print. And I think they brought it back into print. They have the devils, the Devils is a Ken Russell movie starring um, Oliver Reed. It's an absolute must watch for folk horror fans. If you dig the witch and things like that. But yeah, we're getting off onto we're reviewing Shudder now and not uh, not doing our sequels. So uh, <laughs> we, we should get back to work um, If to tie it in uh, in terms of sequels. They just sent out uh, Cursed Films Part Two. So anybody that saw the Shutter Cursed Films documentary series, I watched part two. I just watched episode one yesterday on the Wizard of Oz, and it was very informative. I learned a lot. So sequels. So I think uh, the the witching hour is at hand. Uh, so I think we might end up splitting this into a series. There's certainly no shortage of sequels overall. I so think let's... I think we're very good at making sequels to our own episodes. I think we're really, really proficient with that. So on the next episode, sequels that don't suck <laughs> us. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we'll end on a high note. As far as the next film, we talked about the first one to end our first episode in the slasher series. So we will end our first episode of the sequel series with Toby Hooper's 1986 classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Thirteen years ago, audiences across America were horrified by the brutality of a faceless killer. Now, after more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, directed by Toby Hooper. Starts Friday, August 22nd, and theaters everywhere. Which may be sacrilegious, but is my favorite of the series. There is no sacrilege because the Saw is family, and you are keeping <laughs> it in the family, so it's fine. As long as you're, you're still in, in that microcosm of the, the Sawyer clan and, and their... Roundup Rolling Grill of, of human chili. I think it's okay. It's it's okay to like 
the second one more. It's such a different animal that it's not oh, even yeah, it's like a your tonal yeah, shift. Yeah, it really is. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two. It picks up in the the sequel um, overall of Leatherface and his clan, and they're as Mike said, they're roving at chili competitions <laughs> yeah. in the the truck and all of this going on. Which it's almost kind of a very, um, I would say a, a loose sequel. It's not. There's things that tie into it, but it's not like it's a Halloween one to a Halloween two situation. It has an element of the Evil Dead two situation. It is not the same thing, but it is the same director, and it is taking a raw, scary, uh, balls to the wall horror movie. And making a sequel that is more satirical and more funny, but amping up the blood, like oh, yeah. tenfold. Yeah, this this movie, I think it affected Tim and I in the same way at different points in our lives. Because when I saw the trailer for this, that voice, after a decade of silence, the buzz is back. Like, you're like, oh man, like a new Texas Chainsaw movie. And... <laughs> I saw Texas Chainsaw at around 10 or 11, and this film came out in 1986, so I was 11 years old. So I got to see Chainsaw 1 and 2 at the most formidable year of my life, and I really did see them, I think, it wasn't maybe rapid secession, but I I remember seeing the posters at the video store for Coming Soon. Texas Chainsaw 2. It was actually a, a 3D, like, vacuum-formed, molded image. Like, like a small poster that I was able to get my grubby little mitts on from the video store. Um, and I waited. I waited, like, every day for that movie to come out. And Tim will back me up that it's a disturbing movie. It really, Because it's a comedy. Because, I mean, Hooper claims that his original film was a satire and a comedy, but uh, this one is is a bona fide horror yeah. comedy. Like, I, I think in one word I would say off-kilter mm. the entire time. It's, yeah. I know I mentioned in one of our previous episodes of you don't like Poisoners, I don't like the whole <laughs> like crazy backwoods families. I was going so like, to pick that bone with you, by the way. I was listening to our podcast from before and you said you kind of lost it when it turned into all the family just just yes. torturing her. Well, that's 92% of this film. So, But I, I think it's the first movie is they jump into that dinner scene and it's just like sheer insanity and madness of everybody like laughing and freaking out. Yeah, that's but it, true. It ends up being a lot of acting, but no character in terms of we don't really know who they are. It's just like all of them, yeah. we know they're crazy and they're kind of torturing this girl. In this one, it's almost like a shared narrative of we get to see them, but we also pop over and we see the Sawyer clan of like what they're doing here and there that you end up getting to learn, not necessarily learn about them, but you get to get a better idea of them and their personalities that it ends up being more palatable mm -hmm. and a little bit more fun because now it's, oh, okay, I can follow along. It's not just kind of like these people that just show up all of a sudden and they're just like screaming and laughing as the camera spins around. So I think that's why I end up finding this more enjoyable, even sure. though it's as a concept, I said I didn't like that kind of style originally. 
Well, um, a, a little touch of backstory on this is that this was directed by Toby Hooper, who made the original Texas Chainsaw. He had sort of a, a, a tough career. Like the, he made some some winners like Poltergeist and stuff that did really well at the box office. And then he was sort of having a hard time uh, getting a project going. And he met these two brothers who who owned Canon Films. And for anyone who loves exploitation cinema and really engaging documentaries, I mean, a documentary so good that you will watch it more than once. Oh, my, I have. My, my recommendation is go anywhere you need to go, but find Electric Boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon Films. It is a two-hour documentary on the these two brothers and the insane film company, this juggernaut of a film company that collapsed on itself. Um, they were very prolific in the 80s and a portion of the 90s, but one of the things that they were infamous for doing was trying to secure a popular property, and they didn't really care if they were pissing away a bunch of money uh, on side projects to get that one flagship project to happen. And they worked out a deal with Toby Hooper where they're like, listen, man, you don't want to make a sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but here's the deal. We will give you X amount of money to make a sequel of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And we're also going to give you X amount of money to make two films pretty much anything you want within reason, as long as we can get the project off the ground for the money we're offering you. So because of this too-good-to-be-true deal, he decided, I will figure out a way to make a good Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 movie because I really want to make Life Force and I also want to make Invaders from Mars, a remake uh, of a 1950s film. I really, really enjoy both those movies. The sad reality is both of those films tanked at the box office. I felt so bad for Hooper when that happened because he ended up not really getting any great projects after that it was it was a major hit on his career but life force and and invaders from mars they could have been thrown into our unsung horror films because they're they're really good and if you like toby hooper check those out but amidst all that chaos fans like us got the texas chainsaw massacre too and i'm just over the moon that this movie exists <laughs> i feel like he kind of must have been sitting there going I made the the grittiest, most most harrowing, uh, low budget, backwoods killer movie ever. I think maybe this time I'll look at Reaganomics and capitalism and and the whole politics of the era, and I think I'll make a satire on small business versus big business, and I'll wrap it all up in like Yahoo culture from like Texas, and what he put together is just. It's like a nightmare of a comedy. It's, when people say dark comedy, they don't know what dark is. This is like writing with black ink on black paper in a black room. Like, it's that kind of dark. People get skinned alive. They get slowly and methodically beaten with, with ball-peen hammers. Time for incoming mail! <laughs> it's just a balls-to-the-wall excess like the entire film is just excess would you disagree with that oh, Tim? no yeah I mean, everything I mean, about in, it is excessive in and of itself is probably goes towards mm -hmm. his whole satire theme of 
late 80s, early 90s of things to excess. Yeah. Um, so it, it ends up working great while also being good from a horror aspect. But yeah, like there's so many scenes of that's horrific, but I'm also laughing because oh, of the way that they're doing this. <laughs> you're laughing the but, whole way. And, yeah. he, and he stacks the cast too, because uh, Jim Sidow was the original cook character and he reprises his role. <clears throat> and that guy steals every single scene that he's in. He's so good. And his dialogue is freaking hilarious. This year, Drayton, you've got to tell the secret of that fabulously tasty chili. <laughs> no secret. It's the meat. Uh, don't skimp on the meat. Uh, I, I got a real good eye for prime meat. <laughs> Runs in the family. <laughs> whoop, whoop. It's one of those uh, hard shell peppercorns. <laughs> um, they somehow secured Dennis Hopper. I shouldn't even say somehow, because uh, Hopper does weird stuff. But still, they got Dennis Hopper Super Mario Brothers. To, to play uh, Lefty Enright, this uh, this screw loose. Um, I don't think he's like, an actual. He's not a cop. He's like. A, well, I thought he was like a somehow involved in the Texas Ranger. System that's what or it is. Yeah, he's a Texas Ranger. They cast uh, the absolutely lovely Caroline Williams as Stretch, this radio DJ. and. Caroline is, she she's such an endearing character and or actress I should say. She really brings a lot of sass and strength to her role while also managing to scream and be vulnerable through the whole thing. I I like her. She really brought I think a girl next door believability to her role. So oh, yeah. Um. So I think she adds a lot to it. It's a character that has vulnerability throughout. But also we see her, I mean, taking no shit, but also using her brain and kind of thinking through of how she's getting out of all of these things that it makes her a little bit more than just, say, like a, a damsel in distress kind of situation. Because Lefty's not here to kind of save the day of he's going to be the the big hero. It's kind of between both of them. Um, as a whole. So she's not kind of on the sidelines. Yeah, we we kind of, in our excitement, we forgot to even give you like a three-sentence synopsis. Uh, she stre- <laughs> stretches a radio D- DJ at K. Okla in, in Bernadette, Texas. And she has a radio show. She plays the cramps and all kinds of cool rockabilly type stuff. And uh, she accidentally gets caught up in a chainsaw murder while someone's calling into her show. So she catches the murder on tape. And uh, Lefty Enright is related to a couple of the victims from the first Texas Chainsaw. And for the past decade, he's been trolling around Texas, uh, trying to like look up and connect some of these, these mysterious murders that have been happening. And he's positive it's the same people. And he ends up using her as bait and getting her to play the tape on the air in hopes that the killers hear it and come after her. And then his idea is that he's going to track them and take them out. And the story is that simple. There, there is not a lot of uh, meat for lack of a better term on those bones. That's the setup. And once again, with Hooper, he, he works best with a concise, smaller story. He doesn't oftentimes get huge with what he's trying to present. Um, sometimes he does life forces is a pretty epic uh, concept but the chainsaw movies the two that he made he keeps them super lean 
and super mean, and in this case, really hilarious at the same time. So, um, and that is, that's the story. So the rest of it is all about the characters. I mean, the original one-sheet movie poster that they put out, at the time, John Hughes' The Breakfast Club was was one of the most beloved. It's still beloved, but it was in the public conscience. And this, I don't know if it was Hooper that did this or or the design department, but some genius was like, let's take the entire Sawyer clan and let's pose them verbatim like the the Breakfast Club. <laughs> and to the point where um, Bill Johnson plays Leatherface, uh, Gunnar Hansen did not reprise his role due to not getting enough money. But he's even throwing the fist up uh, just like Judd Nelson. And it's just hysterical. It's a great, iconic movie poster from the 80s. And I think that Breakfast Club poster sums up uh, the amount of satire that's crammed into this movie. If any of you are, are uh, fans of our opening and have paid attention to our samples that are in there, when you hear the, I'm the Lord of the Harvest, that's Dennis Hopper from Texas Chainsaw 2. And the following line, I'm the Lord of the Harvest, the cook says, Who's that? Some new health food bunch? Because the cook is just, he constantly thinks that people are out to get him and are trying to like overtake his his hold on, on the meat eaters of the area. It's it's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. And I know you were mentioning characters and I think this is the, one of the earlier movies that I was introduced to Bill Mosley. It is his debut, I think, as a as a main character. Which, if that's his first coming out of the gate as Chop Top, it's iconic. It's yeah. just perfect mix of, I like him personally better than the, the hitchhiker in the first one, in terms of that kind of oddball craziness, very stream of consciousness. But he ends up doing it in a way that ends up almost, I wouldn't say endearing, he's a madman, but like interesting. He gives Every you enough. Scene he's in, I don't want to like look away. Yeah, there's enough little hints to his like ludicrous backstory. Like clearly he's a Vietnam vet. Like they, they establish that. Uh, Edwin Neal, who I love his portrayal of the hitchhiker from the first movie, but I do get why uh, um, there's something really magical about Bill Mosley's chop top or plate head. People refer to him by a different name, but in this film, he carries around the tanned taxidermied body of his brother, who he lovingly refers to as Nubbin. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just so weird. And he has like marbles stuck in his eyes because the eyes dried out and stuff. And uh, and he's basically like a dummy, you know, and he carries around his brother and he references like, you've done this to me or that to me. Now, now I'm having a flashback. Now I'm flashback. And he gets like off on this Nomland thing where, where, he presents, uh, they're living in this subterranean stronghold that, that doubles as their kitchen and their living space. And it's it's supposedly like a burned out, um, dilapidated version of a, a theme park. And he calls it Nomland. It's a gas. It's Nomland. And he's he's shooting a fire extinguisher around, you know, and, and like talking about Agent Orange and shit. But the weirdest part of his character is that he had some sort of... Um, uh, injury, I guess, and they put a metal plate in his head. But because he is a cannibal, he has this nervous tick where he scrapes the the flesh that's around the edge of it because it's exposed. He scrapes it with a bent up coat hanger, and as he's talking, 
he'll kind of eat the little piece of skin off the end and, and then go back to scratching. And he wears a Sonny Bono wig. And it's just, it's an absolutely perfect character. It's just, it's such a great character that when you're supposed to be a tertiary character in a family and you outshine Leatherface, you know <laughs> he's doing a good job. And, and they bring Grandpa back, different actor. I think they present him as like 128 or something, which makes no sense. The guy could not be that old. But yeah, it kind of turns into the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The last act is very, very similar, but it's a more operatic, heightened, colorful version of it. And the cinematography is a lot of sweeping, grand shots. And, and I mean that sincerely. The, the way I, I gushed about the stripped down, gritty production design of the first film, this film takes that and just amplifies it to where you kind of have some colored lighting effects that harken back to Mario Bava and Dario Argento, but it's like, it's almost like Italian horror lighting on a gritty American landscape. So it is its own unique flavor. And that movie, it is the kind of movie that I could just fucking watch. I could watch Texas Chainsaw 2 every month yeah. for the rest of my life. And I, I just never really get bored of it. It always makes me smile and it always makes me happy. I, I love it. And it contains probably my either my favorite or tied for my favorite jump scare in a movie comes from this, which actually the two in my head were both covered in this episode. The jump scare from Exorcist 3 mm -hmm. and the jump scare from this movie, which... For anybody who knows it, the movie, is it maybe, you know the scene. Is it maybe where you keep the new ones or some of the golden yeah. oldies too, maybe? <laughs> so. so anybody who knows it knows that scene. Anybody who hasn't, you'll know it once you get to that scene from there. So, And anyone who's a Primus fan knows several of the quotes from this film, but they probably didn't know that it was from this movie. So when you watch Texas Chainsaw 2, if you're a Primus fan... Keep an ear out for a couple of key sentences that will ring very familiar to you. So I think that is a great way to kind of round out this episode is with Texas Chainsaw 2. I mean, we're, we're opening with a Friday the 13th. We're closing with a Texas Chainsaw 2. And you have a, a bunch of great things kind of filled in in the in-between. We got some occult. We have some dream logic wackiness. We have some anthology. It's like a, a great grab bag of horror this episode. I think it's diverse. We try to always be diverse. At the same time, we are doing this for the listeners. So as we've always said with every episode, you know, we ran through some movies here. If if a bunch of you really want a deep dive into, let's say, the Phantasm franchise, or you want us to cover anthologies, or there's a movie that you're just like, how come it's never on the list they're covering? You know, we're just starting out, so we got a lot more sequels to talk about. But if there's one you really want us to cover, you just have to let us know. You got to you got to send us an email so and we'll cover it. We might even yeah. shout you out if you if you want your name in there as the person who recommended it. We're not against that. Yeah, it's great hearing from fans. I mean, we're we're equally as big as horror fans as uh, any of you guys that are probably listening. So it's great to just hear from some people. Give me some suggestions, some things that you guys really love as far as some of these movies. And now, your quote for the week. I know that dolphins communicate. 
I mean, they send signals. You don't think that if a shark was destroyed, that another shark could could come in? Sharks don't take things personally, Mr. Brody. Dad, can I please no. send my... So, as Mike said, if you want to shoot us a message, feel free to send us a message over at don'topenthispodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at don'topenthispodcast or on Twitter at don'topenthispod. Keep up with any new episodes or let us know your thoughts and favorites. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. And any final thoughts, Mike, before we... Until next time? Well, you could follow our personal Instagrams if you feel like it. I forget like about it. those. That's okay. It's it's in there somewhere. You're more popular I, than me. Oh, Nobody follows mine. I mean, I do. I, I own Grindhouse Gallery Tattoo, and I feel like uh, a, a large amount of the tattoos I do are horror-based. And since the vast majority of our listeners like horror, um, my Instagram is at FalSignoArt, F-A-L-C-I-G-N-O-A-R-T. That has all my tattoo stuff a bunch of horror sculpture that I, I do from time to time. And I also update the don't open this podcast over there as well. And uh, Tim's is at Mr. Time on Instagram or at Mr. Time 0080 on Twitter. And I also operate the don't open this pod Twitter over there. Uh, so join me on Instagram while I post Amsterdam mostly these days. <laughs> and we will catch you all in two weeks. So enjoy until then. Stop it!